This Sunday, May 8th, marks the 10-year anniversary of No, You Tell It. Help us celebrate by giving a listen to this, the original set of four switched-up stories. Support 10 more years by sharing our series with a friend. No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. Come on, you tell it. I don't even remember. You remember that story. You know the one. Tell it. No, you tell it. You tell it better. No, you tell it. Tell it yourself. (laughs) Well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. Hello. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. On the theme of religion and the complicated loyalties of youth, this is Jeremy Holmes performing Never Call Your Mama a Bitch, written by David Harrell. Mom, you're a fucking bitch. 2.7 seconds pass, and I suck in air trying to bring those words back inside me, while simultaneously feeling the plaster of the wall slamming against my back as my dad says, rather sternly, You will never say those words again. You will never say those words again. What could bring those words out of my modest, South Georgian 12-year-old mouth? Fucking religion. My mother had recently decided to change churches, and I was having a preteen hissy fit. We had attended the Methodist church for as long as I could remember, and now she wanted us to go to the Baptist church. Anything but the Baptists. I had a crew at the Methodist church. Brad, David, and Jeff. B-D-G! B-D-G! We were the three amigos. Literally. I was Chevy Chase, Jeff was Steve Martin, and Brad, because he was the youngest, was Martin Short. From second grade through sixth grade, we roamed the hallows of the Methodist Church. We ruled in kickball, made each other laugh with our popsicle stick men with abnormally large anatomy, and we were masters at tearing apart the bulletin to make spitballs that we would shoot from the balcony onto the big Conway Twitty-like pompadours of the seniors' Sunday school class below. Why was my mom being like Yoko Ono and trying to tear my crew apart? It came out of nowhere. We started attending other churches, and my mother swore we were only going to peruse other options. But it was like when Bloomberg holds these community meetings at schools he wants to close. You know it doesn't matter what is said. Shit is going to change. I knew, no matter what my mom said, she wanted to go to this evil Baptist church. I would sit in services of the churches we were visiting and draw stick-figure portraits of the epic football battles between the Methodist church and the Baptist church. I, of course, was the quarterback for the Methodist church, leading them to victory, and leaving my mother and all the other beady-eyed Baptists to suffer the agony of defeat. I spent my whole life at the Methodist, and the one thing I looked forward to as I finished my sixth grade year was full participation in the YMF. The Youth Methodist Fellowship? BDG had big plans for the YMF. We had totally ruled together, and true, we had to wait a year for Brad to join us. We were so excited to hang with the big kids. Chuck Tate, Hal Barber... Jennifer Walker and, oh, 
OMG, Kathy Bryant. They were the YMF Brat Pack. I thought they were awesome. My mother thought they were hooligans. Rumors of cigarette smoking, beer drinking, and hand jobs were rampant in the YMF, and my parents thought they should send a preventative strike to save me from this debauchery. They believed the Baptist Church had better youth programs and better role models. So we moved to the Baptist Church in the fall of my seventh grade year, and I revolted. I pouted, constantly, stole cigarettes from the Kroger, and would hide in the bushes of the Baptist Church to avoid going to choir practice, especially the effin' bell choir. This continued through the fall until I reluctantly went to a retreat with the Baptist youth group in October. We went to some place out in the woods. It was miserable for the first day and a half, and if I could have called my parents to pick me up, I would have. But something happened during this trip. Guys started cracking jokes with me. We started doing impressions of the adult chaperones, and most importantly, there was basketball. We played constantly. I was welcomed into the group, and after an epic basketball battle, I had a conversation with Mr. Crandall. He wasn't crazy town. He was funny, sincere, and real. A truly authentic man of faith. I changed in an instant. I came home wanting to go to church. I stopped pouting, stealing cigarettes, and started going to choir. I even went to bell choir. In the next year I had, I guess you would call it, a religious experience. I cried like a fool. I couldn't stop. I made a profession of faith. I walked to the front of the Baptist church and told the preacher I wanted to ask Jesus to be my personal Savior. I was born again. I certainly took this decision seriously. The rest of my youth was spent in an up-with-people kind of utopia. I was that guy. The guy who wore polo shirts, khaki pants, and dockside shoes. I listened to Christian rock. I went to Christian rock concerts and started teaching Sunday school. I was a leader of Bible studies at youth retreats and youth camps. I was the model teen, one you would read about in Reader's Digest. Was my mother right to save me from the partying and hand jobs of the YMF? I certainly stayed out of trouble, but I left the church eventually. My mom was doing what she thought was best at the time. Would I have become a drug addict and dropped out of school if I had stayed with the YMF? No. B and G both stayed at the Methodist Church. Brad married one of the girls from the Baptist youth group and is a happy father and a deacon of the church. Jeff is divorced and works construction. So who knows what would have happened to me? Maybe doing the musicals in the choir of the Baptist church led me to the theater. In fact, my father blames Brother McMillan, the choir director, for the vagabond actor's life my brother and I live. Even though I look back at the Southern Baptist Church and cringe, the lessons I learned were lessons of love, not the verbiage of hate and intolerance that seems to permeate these days. My mama wasn't a bitch at all. She wanted to give me the best possible way to survive adolescence and the framework of a moral compass to make me a compassionate and aware member of society. In that, she succeeded. But I still got a handjob at the Baptist camp, Ridgecrest.
I guess the Methodists and the Baptists aren't that different after all. And now, switching up our storytellers, here is David Harrell performing Camp Charisma, written by Jeremy Holmes. I was in a crowded revival barn, watching a grown-ass man in a white Darth Vader outfit, complete with cape, lay hands on his parishioners. Then those parishioners, also grown-ass adults, fell to the ground, twitching and speaking in tongues. As I stood there, one thought repeated itself. You're not getting laid this weekend. How did it come to this? How did I, a horny teenage virgin, retainer wearer, and atheist, end up in an evangelical camp in the backwoods of Ohio? Her name was Sarah. Sarah was my high school sweetheart. We'd been dating for about nine months, and we were just the worst. Adjectives like cutesy, lovey-dovey, barely scratched the surface. When we saw each other at school, we made googly eyes at one another until our friends were uncomfortable. When we couldn't see each other, we talked on the phone for hours about absolutely nothing. Our dates generally began at the dollar movie and concluded in my parked Mercury Topaz as we would make out with reckless abandon. While all that sounds like teenage puppy love, and it was, our courtship was not without its troubles. Simply put, whenever religion made its way into our conversation, things got weird. I was the type of lapsed Catholic who went to church on Christmas to make their grandma happy. Sarah was raised a devout, charismatic Christian. As Sarah explained it to me, charismatic Christians are not only born-again evangelicals, they also believe that the Holy Spirit frequently comes down from heaven to act upon people in their daily lives. My first experience with this charisma was on the phone with Sarah. It was a date night, so my expectations for the evening were something like this. One, watch a bad Keanu pick. Two, engage in a spirited smooch fest in my hatchback. I was bummed, therefore, when she called to cancel because her father was ill. I asked, what's wrong? She said, we think he prayed too hard. Uh-huh. We believe that when you pray, you open your soul to the good spirits. But when your soul is exposed like that, you can be attacked by demons. We're afraid that's what happened. Uh-huh. So what you have to understand about my father is that he had a very real vision of the divine once, and that sometimes it still affects him. Five years ago, he was drunk, fell into a ravine, and broke his neck. While lying there in agony, a light appeared to him, and his pain disappeared. Just as suddenly as the light appeared, it was gone. And when it left, the pain returned. He took that as a sign. Since then, he hasn't had a drink and has fully accepted Jesus into his heart. Not knowing what else to say, I mumbled a, Hope he feels better. Hung up and stared at the phone in my hand for a very long time. Look, then, now, and at all times in between, I found that story to be bat shit crazy. So why didn't I run screaming? Why didn't I end it right there? There are two answers, really. The polite answer is that I found Sarah to be a challenging, fascinating person, 
She was brilliant, sweet, and often seemed to disagree with her religion's hardline views. The impolite answer is, she had nice boobs. And she liked to make out with me. Again, I was 17. Clearly, my judgment was flawed. No better proof of this exists than the fact that I accepted her family's invitation to go camping. I should have known that this was a bad idea right away. No sooner had I said yes than Sarah began trying to talk me out of it. She insisted, You can say no. It's no big deal. You don't have to come. She might as well have said, Run. But I was oblivious. I missed all the signs. Naively, I thought I had signed up for a weekend of s'mores, fishing, and sleeping bag hookups. How could I have been so foolish? After a three-hour ride with Sarah and her parents, we arrived at the campsite. Once there, we were greeted by a group of over 200 people. This was no random assortment of folks, mind you. No, every man, woman, and child occupying a cabin on the grounds was a member of the charismatic church of the new wine. All I could think was, Compound. Only then did it dawn on me. I was 150 miles from home, without my own car or a cell phone. Worse, I was the only person in the zip code who had not pledged their immortal soul to the blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. My panic subsided after I took some deep breaths and regrouped. I had no escape available, so I resolved to make the best of it. To my surprise, this was hardly a chore. In fact, for the majority of my first day, I had a great time. Nobody tried to convert me or lecture me about my wicked ways. Even better, I spent the day doing outdoorsy stuff with some mostly normal-seeming kids my age. We even had s'mores by the campfire. I was about to complete the perfect s'more. The marshmallow was a golden brown, not burnt. The chocolate and the graham cracker were proportioned to my liking. Lots of chocolate, just enough cracker. When a hush came over our campfire huddle, Heads craned and people whispered as three men walked by. I didn't know who they were, but I could tell they were kind of a big deal. I turned to the kid next to me. Hey, who are those guys? He looked at me with bug eyes. The three prophets. You don't know about the three prophets? Around the camp, the prophets were celebrated as rock stars and revered as divine messengers. Young children would giggle and scurry at their presence. Adults would consider it a highlight of their day if a prophet deigned to speak to them. These three men claim to have had God or his angels appear to them and demand they proclaim his glory. They were universally adored, and we were required to attend their daily revivals. The only teenage rebellion I could think of was to give them mean nicknames based on demographics. Prophet Prune Juice was a withering man with a booming voice. He spoke of bringing the word to the devil-worshipping heathens of Columbia. His tales of doing battle with demonic spirits were as cinematic in their description as they were insane in their earnestness. Prophet Sassy was a middle-aged man with a lisp. I linger on that point because his subject matter and word choice. 
He spoke of the dangers of feminism, homosexuality, scientists, and the Spanish language. His abundant use of the sibilant S and his lack of self-awareness were staggering. Prophet Abercrombie was barely twenty and a zealot's zealot. He spoke of the lascivious undertones and subliminal messaging in liberal children's entertainment. This was about the time that the Southern Baptists were boycotting Disney, and the parishioners of the new wine were all too happy to join the angry mob and throw out their Mickeys and Goofies. All the prophets agreed that the primary purpose of a woman was to have children and obey. Often, as I stood in the pew, I would have the recurring sense that there was a spotlight pointing directly towards me, a light that laid bare that I was unclean, unwashed. Unworthy. Please understand. At no point did I feel the urge to fall down and proclaim my faith. Quite the opposite. Still, it is nearly impossible not to doubt your own secular humanist convictions amongst a sea of true believers. When I found the sermons especially frightening, I would steal a glance at Sarah standing next to me. We had entire conversations based on momentary eye or hand contact. I would squeeze her hand as if to say, "He's a nut job." She would pat my hand in reply, which meant, "I know, I know." I'd stare bullets into the ground at her feet, thinking, "That is so racist." She'd give me a fierce-eyed smile that said, "I agree, but please be quiet." It made me feel better that she responded to my unease, but I sensed. That my presence was wearing on her. Perhaps we could have cut the tension if we ever had a moment alone to talk. Boys and girls our age were not allowed to fraternize unless in a group. At night, I bunked with other boys. The girls' bunk was across a man-made lake. The bridge had a motion-sensitive light. There would be no sneaking out, no heart-to-heart chat. After three long nights. Bunking with strangers, Sunday came and hallelujah, one more meal, one more revival, and then finally I could go home. Before my deliverance was granted, however, I had to endure a form of torture administered by both the secular and the religious. A talent show. The camp was a twitter about the show all weekend. It was undoubtedly the highlight of the weekend for many of the attendees. The show started with a pretty impressive smoke and sound effects display, and then an announcer introduced the show's MC, Light Vader. Out came who else but Prophet Sassy, in a full negative image of the original Star Wars character. He was dressed head to toe in an all-white replica of the helmet, chest piece, cape, tights, and boots of the Sith Lord. What's more, he was brandishing a rainbow-colored lightsaber. If anyone besides me found this to be an awkward, hysterical mess, they certainly were quiet about it. When I let out the slightest giggle, Sarah turned away. Fully immersed in character, Light Vader explained that he had been brought to the light of the Lord and thus was wiping out darkness and evil with his lightsaber of many colors. As he waved the rainbow flag of a saber in the air, 
I had a strong image of Thassy as a five-year-old being punished for playing with his sister's Barbies. Did this actually happen? How could I know? But I felt bad anyway. The rest of the show was a blur of crazy. A band changing the words of Van Halen's Girl, you really got me now. Two, God, you really got me now. A hardcore Christian group shout-screaming a song titled I didn't come from no ape. I didn't come from no ape. I don't remember a winner, or even a defined end to the talent show, but I do remember how the revival ended. As a grand finale, All the prophets, pastors, and deacons of the church came forward and were blessed by the oldest and most revered prophet of the church. This meant that the prophet went up to each of these men, because of course they were all men. And one by one, he laid hands upon their eyes, ears, and mouths and shouted, I charge you in Jesus' name to go forth and proclaim his glory. The congregants then all rose, formed several lines, one in front of each of the newly blessed elders. One by one, the flock came forward to have an elder lay hands upon them and to offer them a hushed blessing. Some worshippers simply smiled, said bless you, and walked back to their seats. But they were in the minority. Most of the freshly blessed did some or all of the following. Fall to their knees, fall to the ground, Seize, scream, speak in tongues, shout scripture, and cry. I stood stock still, the only person in the barn that did not line up. My imaginary spotlight felt blindingly bright. It all happened so quickly. There were probably twenty people flailing on the ground before I realized what was going on. The strangest part of the whole experience was how little this behavior, the convulsing, spitting, shouting in tongues, affected the other parishioners. If someone went into a rapturous state in front of you, protocol apparently isn't to stop and check on them, but to just step over them and be on your way. Sarah's own father administered her blessing. As she approached him, I wondered how the blessing would affect her. Would she really convulse and seize on the ground? No. Instead, she took a step back from him, turned, and looked directly at me. I can only guess, but when she saw me, glued to the pew, with no intention of participating in this ritual, I think it broke her idea of us up in a way that I couldn't mend. She burst into tears and ran out of the barn. When I found her several minutes later, she was done crying but was shaken from the experience. We proceeded to have a classic teenage non-conversation. I asked if she was okay, and she said she was fine. I asked if she needed anything. She said she wanted to go for a walk. She took my hand, and we walked in silence. I didn't tell her how upset the weekend had made me, or how I thought she was so much better, smarter, kinder than these people. I didn't say... You should run away and never go back. She never told me why she broke out into tears the moment she saw me that day. In a few weeks, we would officially break up. 
but that walk was the end. On the theme of religion and what our mothers give and leave us, this is Jorge Cordova performing Grace in the World, written by Erica Iverson. For the past two years, I've been teaching drama at a Catholic girls' school on the Upper East Side. For the most part, I avoid talking about religion with my students. But if anyone asks, I can always say, hey, some of my best friends are Catholic. No, I'm not Catholic, but my 99-year-old grandmother is. My grandmother is still sharp as a tack and believes in the Catholic Church, the Democratic Party, and good scotch. Not necessarily in that order. My mother was raised Lutheran and my father was raised Catholic. And when they got married, they decided they didn't really want to be either. So when we moved to Laramie, Wyoming in 1976, my baby brother and I had a welcoming ceremony into the Unitarian Fellowship. When a friend who was going to be baptized as an adult asked me to be her sponsor, I had to confess that I wasn't certain if I had been baptized myself. She said, well, I don't think they'll be checking baptism certificates at the door. When I was about six or so, my mother led a religious education, a.k.a. Sunday school, class at our Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. My mother grew up on a ranch in South Dakota and knew a lot about wildflowers and birds. So she helped us plant flowers in the spring and took us on field trips up to the mountains. We also talked about evolution and dinosaurs and the solar system and read about Mike Fink, the king of the Mississippi boatmen. Don't ask me what Mike Fink has to do with religious education. I really don't know. After my parents divorced, neither family really went to the fellowship meetings anymore, although my mother still received the Unitarian Universalist magazine, The World. My mother had left my father for another man, and in our small college town, it was big gossip. My father felt humiliated, I think, and essentially demanded that friends pick either him or her. Since mom threw great parties, was happy and in love, and was generally fun, and dad was clinically depressed, a lot of them picked mom. Mom married the man she left my father for, my stepfather, Adi, and he didn't want to go to church. So I wasn't really going to any kind of church, except when I visited either set of grandparents. But... It was in an issue of The World magazine that I first saw an article about the idea of grace, the presence of grace in the world. Although my stepfather is an atheist, I don't think my mother ever really had an aversion to religion. She played the piano and the organ for services at her church growing up and made some extra money in college playing for various church events or accompanying singers. Once, my former babysitter Bonnie, who we'd met through the Unitarian Fellowship, asked my mother to record an arrangement of songs from Free to Be You and Me for her floor exercise routine at the state gymnastics tournament. After recording and re-recording various versions, my mom finally got it down to the exact timing that Bonnie needed. And then Bonnie broke her finger and wasn't able to compete. My mom was pissed. Although she was raised Unitarian, Bonnie later married an evangelical Christian converted and went on some kind of evangelical Christian gymnastics tour that my stepfather insisted on calling backflips for Jesus. Upon hearing that Bonnie's older sister had also married an evangelical Christian, Mom looked across the kitchen table at me and said, You aren't going to do that to me, are you? I, I didn't think so. When I was sent promotional material from Texas Christian University after the PSATs, I commented that any place with both Texas and Christian in the title probably wasn't for me. After years of being perfectly happy to avoid any kind of church, I started attending a Unitarian Universalist campus meeting on Sunday nights at Columbia University. I was in graduate school, rattled by some semi-abusive directors in my MFA acting program, and coping with my own depression as well as health issues from both my parents. 
Dad had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease, which his father had died from a couple of years earlier. Because he had professional colleagues who were friends with my mother, he asked me to keep his diagnosis a secret from her. Meanwhile, my mother and I had started to really butt heads, and the fact that I couldn't tell her about one of my major sources of stress didn't help. She had also started turning from what I thought of as a heavy drinker into a problem drinker. She didn't drink during the day, but could be relied upon to have at least a couple large glasses of bourbon every evening. I had lost an important mentor in college to breast cancer, and I used that as an excuse to have a half-ass roundabout conversation with my mother about her drinking. Mom, I've read these studies that say that women who have five or more drinks per week have an increased risk of breast cancer, and sometimes I worry about that. Well, she said, I don't feel the need to live forever. It's my life, and I'm going to live it however I want. I want to enjoy my life now, and if I don't live to be 100 years old, well, that's okay. When I was little, I used to go everywhere with her, to the campus of the University of Wyoming, or on the hiking trails outside of town, and I was almost always stumbling along behind. Her office in the sociology department was on the fourth floor, and she always insisted on taking the stairs. My five-year-old legs chasing behind her, asking if just this once we couldn't take the elevator, slowing down on purpose to see if she would notice. Mom, slow down. Wait for me. When I think of my mother, I imagine her saying, Keep up, Erica, and forging ahead of me, daring me to get my button gear and get going. When I cried at school or got upset over little things, I was sensitive. I could tell that she disapproved. She was tough, and she wanted me to be tough. Two years ago, I visited my mom and Adi over Christmas and realized that she had moved from problem drinker status to full-blown alcoholism. I caught her pouring gin into her vitamin water bottle before we set out hiking with my stepbrother and sister and their families. I was the only one staying at their house rather than a rented condo since I'm the only unmarried child. So I got the full brunt of the late-night behavior that my siblings missed. I wanted to confront her, to ask her to change, but even vague swings in that direction were met with outright hostility. And I didn't want to ruin Christmas. So some evenings I went into nervous chatter mode, filling any awkward silences with stories about my life in New York, until my mother turned her stony gaze on me and said, You know, you don't have to talk so much. It's annoying. I left the room and then burst into tears. She could be a mean drunk. And like any animal, when she felt she was being accused of something or backed into a corner, she lashed out. That June, my mother's father died. He had been taking care of my grandmother for years, but had just learned that he had a large tumor and that it was untreatable. When mom came to the funeral, we learned that she'd just had a biopsy done on a lump in her breast. She'd been avoiding going to doctors for at least a month, probably longer, since she and Adi were in Hawaii and she wanted to wait until she came back to Laramie. After the funeral, we learned that she had stage 3 breast cancer, an aggressive cancer, but one that could be treated with a new drug, heparin. She was given a year's life expectancy without treatment, with the possibility of 10 years after chemo and radiation. I wish I had saved the voice message she left about the special cancer treatment issue of Newsweek with the cover story about the stuff that's going to fix me. It was so mom. I had been unemployed for quite some time and finally had gotten the job teaching at the Catholic school. I kept saying, how's it going? Should I come home? But she said, you've got a new job. I don't want you to lose it. She didn't want me to come. I'm still not sure if she didn't want me to see her weakened by cancer or if she just didn't want me to make a scene. Friends said, your mom's a fighter. She'll make it. Meanwhile, 
I entertain my feminist mother with stories of trying to bring a sense of the power of women's voices to classes of ornery teenagers. I said, Mom, I keep almost saying things like, Hey, you in the back, shut up for a minute so I can tell you how not to be silenced. No. Wait. She laughed and laughed. I was only teaching part-time and trying to find additional work, directing a friend's one-woman show, and trying to find a new roommate for my tiny Manhattan apartment. And then the morning I started a temp job at Weight Watchers, I got a cryptic message from my mom's younger sister. I called her back. Mary, what's going on? Do I need to get over there? She paused, swallowed back tears. You aren't going to make it, honey. It's going to be today. My stepfather, in some combination of concealment and denial, hadn't told any of us how bad things had gotten. I hung up, bought an airline ticket, and ran the few blocks home to grab a bag with a few things in it. She died while I was in the cab on the way to the airport. Sometimes in the past, I've almost wished that I was brought up Catholic. Being a Unitarian Universalist is great and all. Determining our individual search for meaning, a free and responsible search for truth. But it doesn't give you much to rebel against as a teenager or to give you guidelines in the midst of loss. There is no set ritual, no saint to pray to, no wake to provide catharsis, no reassuring belief that Jesus has welcomed her home or that I will see her again. My mother has left me behind, and I'm not sure where to look for her. My brother's wife was pregnant, but my brother never got a chance to tell her. When I told this to my Catholic colleagues at the high school, they would tilt their heads to the side in that sympathy gesture and say, Well, she knows now. Does she? Is she watching us? Does she know? I don't know if I believe in God. I've never had a personal relationship with God, a belief that someone was watching, that there was a plan. I hope that there was at least some kind of pattern. I guess I had a vague idea that perhaps God existed, but I didn't really think that he was paying attention. Now, I just don't know. I don't know if my mother is out there somewhere in the universe. I don't know if some part of what was hers still exists or if her ashes will just slowly mix with the dirt in the family cemetery in South Dakota and someday her molecules will feed the grass and the wildflowers. But I guess I feel like I still believe in the existence of grace, the presence of grace in the world. I started feeling oddly superstitious, or spiritual, I guess, about birds in the last two years. The morning after my grandfather's death, in the sick room several of us had been camped out in for days, The most beautiful oriole with a spectacular orange breast flew down and perched on the purple petunias I had planted on the windowsill. He paused for a moment, eyed me through the window, and then flew away. And the day after my mother's death, as I walked along the Laramie River outside of town, a brilliant blue jay flew down across the river and back up again, a flash of bright blue against the cottonwood trees. My mother taught me about birds and flowers and about how to tell different kinds of species from wing shapes and colors and songs. It's not exactly that I think my mother is sitting on a cloud in a white nightgown with a harp somewhere sending me birds, but my mother had a huge effect on who I am today. And part of who I am is someone who notices birds. So every once in a while when a bird crosses my path, I stop to watch. And if it looks at me straight in the eye, I say, Hi, Mom. I miss you. And now, switching up our storytellers, here is Erica Iverson performing Confirm This, written by Jorge Cordova. It 
was a pretty simple conversation. My mother was dropping me off at my first confirmation class at our local church, Nativity, and I turned to her and said, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be here. After a brief discussion, I'm sure I begged and cried and probably made up excuses about being sick, we left. I think the idea was I would miss this one class and go back next week, but I never went back. It just kind of went away, and I have no memory of it being brought up again. Wikipedia describes the Catholic confirmation process as one of the seven sacraments through which Catholics pass in the process of their religious upbringing. According to Catholic doctrine, in this sacrament, Catholics receive the Holy Spirit and become adult members of the Catholic Church. It is only the second sacrament, the first being baptism and the last being matrimony. For me, the most important part of this was becoming an adult member of the Catholic Church. All five of my older siblings had been confirmed. They went to the classes, attended a ceremony at church confirming their faith, and came back for a family celebration that was made complete with a giant cake from Albertsons. Definitely adult. The fact that I, on the other hand, did not get confirmed may not seem like a big deal to those who didn't know my mother. But my mother was extremely religious and spiritual and a huge believer in the Catholic Church. Before she ever met my father, she had dreams of becoming a nun. She felt a calling, a calling to serve God and her church, to be a good Catholic, and to raise her children to be wonderful little Catholics as well. She watched Mother Angelica, the Oprah of EWTN, the Catholic cable channel, as she folded the laundry, and led us in praying the rosary on long car rides or during moments of downtime. Once there were no kids in the house to wake up and feed, she began going to the daily morning mass before she went to work. She didn't proselytize, judge, or berate anyone with her beliefs. She just quietly prayed for them and gave them even more kindness and love. She was a Catholic all-star. So for her youngest child to say, I'm not getting confirmed, and for her to just let it slide is almost unfathomable. I can only speculate on the reason for this lapse in Catholic child-rearing. In that brief moment when I told her, I don't want to go to these classes, she might have had a minor stroke. One of those very tiny strokes that go undetected, but cause major alterations in your brain function. Or she might have been so completely overwhelmed by the five other kids in her life, she just didn't have the strength to fight this battle with her baby. So it didn't happen. We never went back, and I never got confirmed. And I don't remember talking about it again. It's as if we had an unspoken pact that it would never be mentioned again between us or in mixed company. Time began to allow a story to manifest in our heads that made us all think I had been confirmed. A small lie that started to feel real and allowed me to move on to the third sacrament, receiving the Eucharist, without too much guilt. My mother had a way of making every person she came in contact with feel completely unique. Having a relationship or even a conversation with her made you feel like you were in on a secret 
or a joke that no one else understood. Me not going back to my confirmation classes was our little inside joke. It was such an exclusive joke that more than 20 years later, my siblings still need to be reminded I was never actually confirmed. I didn't feel like less of a Catholic because of this, and I still had a great deal of fear and respect for the church. But by missing out on those classes in the eyes of the Catholic Church, I missed out on the opportunity to learn how to become an adult. And the church wasn't a hobby or a social club. It was a way of life. Without my official certificate from the Catholic Church, my entrance into adulthood would have to wait three years until I was 16. I was taller, hairier, and people officially stopped confusing me with my sister Betty when they called the house. I was in high school. I had a driver's license. And most importantly, I had a girlfriend. Despite the gap in my religious upbringing, I was no longer a kid. Shelley, my girlfriend and first true love, was my ticket into adulthood. She was 17 and a high school senior when I was in my junior year. Our relationship was probably no more than 11 months long, and two of those months were spent apart while she visited her father in Buffalo. But in my mind, it felt like a solid five-year affair. Within weeks of our relationship, we found ourselves hopelessly in love. So having sex seemed inevitable. Not that I even knew what the feeling of inevitability would feel like since up to that point, my sexual experience involved making out in closets for no more than seven minutes at a time. But Shelley was experienced. She had sex once with some other guy named Michael. He was a year older and far more suave. I don't think I ever had a conversation with him, but he haunted me. But she and I had a much deeper love, a love ready for sex. We never talked about it. We never had the conversation of, yes, I'm ready to take the next step in our relationship. No, we were young and in love and had no intention of ever hurting each other, what was there to talk about? After dating for a couple of months, I was sure nobody knew me better than Shelley, and I knew her better than she knew herself. Instead of talking, we just molested each other and expressed how deeply in love we were with each other. No talk about actual intercourse or what it might mean for us to have sex. So the night it actually happened was a complete shock. We were in her living room watching TV while her mom, stepdad, and annoying little half-brother slept down the hall. We were doing what we did best, fiddling about underneath layers of blankets. Except this time, the fiddling turned into something else. As I lay on top of her with my tongue aggressively in her mouth, I realized she had opened up my pants. And then, not wanting to seem disrespectful or afraid, I followed her lead and began loosening her pants. I mean, she was the experienced one, so I figured she knew what was happening. Next thing I know, our privates are touching. I've heard guys, 
Me. Use the excuse. It was an accident. When they're explaining to their girlfriend why they hooked up with some random girl in a bar bathroom. We were drunk and couldn't distinguish right from wrong. My penis fell out of my pants and into her hand, and she tried to let go, but then we had an accident. This very moment with Shelley felt like one giant accident. I was this mass of nervous boy rocking myself on her, when all of a sudden things became slippery, so slippery that I... I accidentally slipped and caused her to make a sound I had never heard before. I was inside of her. I think the sound she made was almost as if she had just walked into a surprise party. (gasps) This quick breath of fear followed by a low groan of relief. Once she made her sound, I figured I should make some noises as well, mostly because I realized I had not taken a breath in quite a while. (sighs) I gave out a hushed grunt that I hoped didn't reveal my fear and confusion. I kept rocking on top of her because I didn't even know how to stop. Hell, I didn't even know if we had started. And if we had started, what the hell did we start? And then just as I came to terms with what was happening, I ended it. Not a conscious choice, but the choice that is made for you when your body tells you that's all you can handle. The whole thing lasted about three minutes. I laid there in shock while she got up and cleaned the mess. I felt terrified and exhilarated, not completely grasping what just happened. Everything about me felt different. The next morning, my mother randomly decided to take us out to a church 30 minutes away so we could all go to confession. Confession? Really? It's as if she knew. It's as if the joke my siblings and I shared about her having a direct line to God was actually true. As was par for the course, all of my siblings moaned and groaned. Oh, I hate that church. It's so far. One of my sisters wailed. This better not mean we are going to Margie's house, another protested. All I thought was, are any of you about to confess that you had unprotected premarital sex? Of course, they might have all said yes, but at that moment I felt horribly alone. Avoiding eye contact with my mother, knowing she would see right through me, I immediately jumped in my brother's truck And before we got out of our neighborhood, I told him I had sex with Shelley. It wasn't a moment of bragging. It was fear. I wanted my brother to drive us out of the state. Maybe head to Mexico and start up a new life. Just him and me. I had two conflicting feelings. One of guilt for being such a horrible human being and having premarital sex. And the other of embarrassment for my pathetic sexual debut. I mean, yes, I shouldn't have done it. But since I did, it could have been a little more adventurous or acrobatic or pleasurable. My brother told me I shouldn't feel bad about any of it, but that I must bring her flowers the next time I see her. 
It'll show you love and respect her. It'll show you are a man. Completely amazing advice from my brother. The same guy who now tells his wife to buy her own gifts because it's just better that way. Of course, I didn't take his advice. It was too cheesy and obvious. And I was far too cool to show that kind of weakness. Walking into church, I felt guilt sticking my finger in the holy water, thinking I would contaminate it for all the other parishioners. I confessed to the priest. I told him what I had done. He said he would pray for me, and that I should do the same for myself, making sure to ask the Lord for forgiveness. He didn't beat me or hate me or call me horrible names. He just asked me to do a certain number of Hail Marys. Without ever taking a single confirmation class, I completed the fourth sacrament, penance. I felt remorse for my sins. I confessed them to a priest. He absolved me and gave me my penance. I like to think my mother heard me when I said, I don't want to do this in that parking lot and that she respected my decision to find my own path. Or maybe the little secret she kept with the church was, let's face it, this kid is going to suck as a Catholic. Either way, after that day when I could finally bring myself to face my mother again, I looked into her eyes and thought, I don't need you the way I have always needed you. Or at least that's what I forced myself to think because if I looked at her for too long, I might have just cried and admitted my fear. Having sex at 16 didn't make me an adult, and I'm not sure getting confirmed would have set me off on the right foot towards adulthood either. Maybe it would have made me a better person, but it would never have taught me to use a condom. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. We hope you've enjoyed this production of No, You Tell It, created by Kelly Jean Fitzsimmons. This program was produced by Kelly Jean Fitzsimmons and Mike Dressel, engineered by Anton Kreisel. If you have questions, suggestions, or have a story you would like to switch and share, email us at no, you tell it at gmail.com.